If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9. And we're going to pick up where we left off a couple weeks ago. Thanks to Jake for uh, filling in last week and um, preaching the word while our family was on vacation. It was a good vacation. Got to go see Niagara Falls. It was kind of a last minute thing. We threw this trip together. Um, although I'll say if you need to know about what to do in Niagara Falls, my wife has a spreadsheet that can help you figure out what's all available. Uh, so if you're planning a trip, contact us. But it was great how it it uh, it all worked out. I was talking to my neighbor this morning and just sort of telling him how it everything went well. The weather was nice. We got to do all the stuff that we wanted to. And, and his response, his comment was something like, you got to love it when a plan comes together. And I thought, yeah, that's good. And of course, I'd been thinking about this sermon. And I started thinking about Acts. And I started thinking about God's plan. And and how in Acts, we, we see how God's plan of sending the gospel to the ends of the earth is coming together. Uh, his was not as haphazard as ours was, or last minute as ours was, but planned before the foundations of the world. But he he is bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. The plan is coming together. And one of the key people in this plan is the Apostle Paul. Without a doubt, we could say that the Apostle Paul is one of the towering figures in the Scriptures. Um, His words comprise 13 books within the New Testament, probably somewhere around 25% of the New Testament. And the story of his conversion and then his ministry that follows are about to become the main content of the book of Acts from this point on. So much of what we're going to study in the book of Acts is going to be about about Paul and how God was using him. And because of all this, because of so much written about him and by him, we know a lot about Paul, um, more than I will be able to cover this afternoon. Uh, There are a lot of things that I was thinking about and uh, wrestling with that I would like to share, but time will keep us from doing that. And so I think it's going to be good for us just to focus on what is here in Acts 9 verses 1 through 19, namely the conversion of Paul, how Paul became a Christian. It's a story I think that Luke must have liked because he ends up recording it three different times in the book of Acts. It's here in chapter 9, and then again it's in Paul's mouth in chapter 22 and in chapter 26. But I don't think Luke just liked it because he thought it was a good story, but he also saw the deep significance of what it meant for Paul to become a follower of Jesus. The conversion of Paul, who's known here as Saul, represented one of two key conversions that opened up the door for the gospel to spread to the Gentiles, to those who were not Jewish, who were not Samaritans, but those who represented the the ends of the earth that the good news was supposed to go to. The second conversion that we're going to look at in, in chapters 10 and 11 is the conversion of Cornelius, who is said to be the first Gentile to become a Christian, but the first conversion is is of Saul, Saul who becomes the unlikely apostle to the Gentiles, and it's within that context of sort of the the spread of the gospel, which is so much about uh, what the Book of Acts is about. Within that that context of breaking down barriers and and the growth of the good news of Jesus, it's here that I I think that what Luke is trying to help us to see and what he's saying to us is this. God is purposely pursuing particular people. A lot of P's there for you. God is purposely pursuing particular people as he spreads his gospel and glory to the ends of the earth. 
God's doing something. God's got a plan and it's coming together. And what he's doing is he is purposely pursuing particular people as he spreads his gospel and glory to the ends of the earth. At first I said it, God is purposely pursuing particular people to spread his gospel, which I think fits as well because Paul is a unique person that's going to do a unique work. But I think we can think about it just that he's doing this as he spreads the gospel as well. I also don't think that that's a particularly new thought in our study of Acts. That could be said in some ways about the account of the Ethiopian eunuch coming to faith in Christ, that God was pursuing this man. Um, But I I offer it up as the truth that we're going to think about this afternoon to remind us that God is still seeking people. God is seeking out lost sheep, and he's seeking out lost coins and lost sons and daughters, as he talks about in Luke 15. God is still actively pursuing in a purposeful way, the souls of individuals, both to be his children and to be part of his kingdom and the work that he's doing. God's got a plan that's coming together. And in stating the the big idea that way, I want us to recognize that God is actively doing the work of pursuing and saving others as he's spreading his name and fame to all people. Uh, A way way to recognize that is is to see just how God was pursuing Saul And in seeing that, we're reminded of the fact that God purposely pursued us, that God sought after us and saved us, and also that he's purposely pursuing other people, even in this moment, that he's chasing after them, seeking to save them. We're invited, as we read this, to to rejoice in what God did in in Saul's life. We're invited to rejoice in what God has, has done in our lives. But we're also, remember, Acts is not just reporting information, but it's calling us to join in. We're invited to join in on what God is still doing as he's drawing people to himself and as he uses each of us in that work. You know, I wonder too, it may even be that God's pursuing you this morning, that he's revealing himself to you in in varied ways. And today, as for Saul, it might be that the scales fall from your eyes and you see Jesus for the Savior that that he really is. Because Acts 9 teaches us that God is purposely pursuing particular people as he's spreading this gospel. He's pursued those of us who are children and he may be pursuing you this morning. So I want to read Acts 9 verses 1 to 19 and and begin to consider this, this powerful pursuing grace of God in Saul's life and our lives and in the lives of those around us. So look with me at Acts 9 verses 1 to 19. It begins, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. 
And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. As we walk through this passage, I want to be as practical as we can. As we think about this pursuit of God, God pursuing particular people, God pursuing Saul. And so our main points hopefully will be very applicable to our lives. So the first thing that I want us to see, the first lesson that we might learn as we think about Saul's conversion is this. Never assume that someone cannot be changed by Jesus. Never assume that someone cannot be changed by Jesus. Of all the unlikely converts in Scripture, Saul is one of the most unlikely. We're introduced to him in chapters 7 and 8 as the man who watched the coats of the people who stoned Stephen and who stood by approving of the killing of this follower of Jesus. Saul was a a Jewish man and a Pharisee committed to a strict keeping of the law. And we see in his actions in chapters 7 and 8 that he stood against the followers of Jesus. He stood against the thought that Jesus was the Messiah let alone the fact, the thought that he was God in human form. But in his opposition, Saul doesn't just stand. At the beginning of chapter 8, he begins to actively seek to destroy the church. He's dragging men and women who confessed belief in Jesus from their homes into prison. He ended up being a key part of the persecution that caused so many believers to flee from Jerusalem. And he was so enraged by the followers of Jesus that once The Christians left Jerusalem. They were out of his town. They were out of his hair. But that wasn't enough. He pursued them to other cities so that he could persecute them further. This is how he says it when he's telling his testimony in Acts 26, verses 9 to 11. Standing before King Agrippa, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, But then when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And so here at the beginning of chapter 9, we witness Saul getting approval from the church in Jerusalem so that he can travel northeast to Damascus, find people in synagogues who are professing to follow the way of Jesus drag them out of the synagogue and bring them back to Jerusalem and throw them in prison. 
Saul is not a weekend opponent of the Church of Jesus Christ. This is not some sort of hobby for him. This is his obsession. In fact, the language that's used to describe him in chapter 8 calls to mind the, the picture of an enraged beast that wants to tear apart its prey. And here we find him breathing out murderous threats and setting off to Damascus in a blind rage with the goal of destroying the Christians who had fled there and destroying the church itself, it would seem, even if he has to do it single-handedly. It's Saul is described in this way, but beyond just the descriptions of how vicious Saul was, we can see how enraged he was at the church by the responses of Ananias and the church in Damascus when they heard about Saul. The response was one of extreme fear and skepticism about this guy. They wondered, can Saul really have been changed by Jesus? And and they weren't willing to, to be the ones that would step forth and, you know, kind of step into the lion's cage and see if this guy had really been changed. Seeing this description of Saul and, and knowing uh, about what is going to happen in the chapter, though, we are reminded, we're encouraged to say that we must never assume that someone cannot be changed by Jesus. We should never think that someone is beyond the reach of the gospel, that they're too intellectual or too dull, that they're too bad or they're too good, or they're too caught up in their own religion, or they're too opposed to any kind of religion. Or just that they're just too lost for Jesus to ever find them. Saul himself tells us that he was saved. We read this in 1 Timothy. He was saved to show that anyone can be saved. Saul was purposely saved by Jesus and made a leader in the church so that everyone could look at him and say, well, if that guy can be a Christian, I guess I can too. So if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I would say to you, never assume that you can't be changed by Jesus. Don't assume that God can't reach you, that God can't transform you into his child, because he can. And he can draw anyone to himself, no matter how hard they try to push him away. If you're a Christian, remember that, while probably not as visibly, you and I were just as opposed to the gospel. Saul reminds us that apart from God's grace, we too would be going down the road of actively opposing God's work in the world and in our hearts. And if God has saved beasts like us, then he can save anyone. Never assume that someone cannot be changed by Jesus. In fact, I would say if someone is so viciously and viscerally opposed to the gospel, it may be because they are suppressing the conviction of the Spirit. That while on the surface they may appear to be the most unlikely person to follow Jesus, it may be that God is already actively drawing them to faith. And their opposition to him is evidence of just that. Evidence that there's deep struggle happening in their heart and in their soul. I think that's part of what's happening in Saul's heart, which leads to this this second point. So first, we must never assume that someone cannot be changed by the gospel. But second, look for God working through slow preparation and sudden intervention. If we're thinking about how God acts, we can look for how he's acting and look for God working. And when we look for God working, look for it through slow preparation and sudden intervention. As we seek to join in on the continued growth of God's kingdom in our day, we must look for God's hand. And we can see it in slow preparation and sudden intervention. So Saul's on his way to Damascus to arrest the followers of the way and drag them back to Jerusalem. But God obviously has other plans for Saul. And on his way, a light from heaven engulfs him. 
Other accounts tell us that this was about noon when it happened. So the height of, of, of brightness in that day and the light was brighter than the sun. It was so blindingly powerful that it knocked Saul from off his horse. I assume he was on a horse. I don't know. That's always what's been told to me. I couldn't really find any indication that he was on a horse. Um, the text doesn't really say so, but I assume he was. In fact, if you go to the Speed Art Museum here in town, there's a, a painting of this scene. And, and Saul is on the ground next to his horse, and his eyes are sort of glazed over. Um, I have two favorite details in that painting if you go and see it. The first is that on the ground there's a small sealed piece of, of paper next to him with a, a seal of sorts on it, which I assume were these um, the orders from the chief priests for him to be able to go in and, and capture and take home uh, the, those who profess Christ. But the second is the way that, that Jesus is portrayed. He's depicted sort of leaning out of heaven. And out of his mouth, not, not his eyes or anywhere else, but from his mouth, there's this faint line, almost like a ray of sunshine, that if you trace it just right, it looks like it's hitting Saul right in the face. Because, of course, Saul was not just blinded by the light. He also heard the voice of Jesus. And even later, we're told that he saw the resurrected Christ. Jesus spoke to Saul. Look at the conversation. It begins in verse 4. And falling to the ground, he, that Saul, heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. It's, it's revealed to Saul that in seeking to harm the church, he was actually harming Jesus, who Saul now recognizes as an authority. He calls him Lord. He may not see him as, as Christ, as the Messiah just yet, but he's at least a, a power to be respected. And, and Saul, who is now blinded, is humbly led into Damascus, where he fasts for three days. This was not the kind of entrance, I think, that Saul was expecting to make in Damascus. But things have suddenly changed. In a moment, it, by God's sudden intervention, Saul's life has been eternally altered by the risen Jesus. And yet, as sudden as this change seems, I think there's also the indication that God had been pricking Saul's heart for some time now. That, that this appearance was not all that God had done to draw Saul to salvation. Acts 22 and 26, when we read those accounts, we find the addition of, of Jesus questioning Saul. And he's, in, in addition to this question, he's, he makes this statement. Saul, isn't it hard for you to kick against the goads? Animals, when they are plowing a field, sometimes don't want to do it. And back in the days when they were plowing fields and the animals didn't want to do it, they would kick their hind legs back. But in doing so, they would find themselves kicking against goads or or pricks that were attached to the front of the plow that were intended to train them not to fight, but rather to submit to their master. And so Jesus says to Saul that it was time for him to stop kicking against him, meaning that, that God has been drawing Saul, and Saul had been kicking against him. He's unwilling to submit to King Jesus until this moment. So there is this sudden intervention in Paul's life, but there's also probably many small prods 
and pricks and goads that were be, that were bringing him to this place of admitting his sin and believing that Jesus truly was the Messiah. So what were those? What were the things that were leading Saul? We're not told exactly, but I think we can rightly presume a few. Let me give you three. One of these, these prods would be uncertainty about who Jesus truly was. There was an uncertainty in Saul about who Jesus really was. As sure as Saul seems to be about the fact that Jesus was not the Messiah, he must have had some doubts. How could he explain the way that Jesus taught or the miracles that Jesus performed? Had he really risen from the dead? There seemed to be a lot of evidence that was pointing to the reality of that. We might even wonder if Saul had heard and maybe even seen Jesus before this moment on the road to Damascus. And not in some sort of different dream, but rather before he was crucified. Wouldn't it make sense that Saul would have been in Jerusalem at some of the same times? We can't know, but it it may be that Jesus and Saul had met, or that Saul had heard Jesus teaching, or he maybe even had looked in his eyes. And yet even if he never had, the testimony about Jesus in the mouth of his followers surely caused Saul to wonder if maybe this guy really was the Messiah that they had been waiting for. He's uncertain about who Jesus truly was. Another thing that was prodding Saul could have been the testimony of Jesus' followers. The testimony of Jesus' followers was something that was pushing Saul to question what was going on. He knew about the love and the fellowship of the church in Jerusalem, as well as the miracles that always seemed to be with them. But I think the most poignant testimony to Saul would have been that of Stephen. To hear Stephen as Saul did, to hear his knowledge of the Scriptures, to see Stephen's face shining like an angel as he spoke. To hear Stephen ask that God would forgive those that were killing him. And then to see him die that way before the very face of God. As much as he stood by and he approved of it, Saul was surely moved by this scene. In my mind's eye, I just wonder if Saul woke up in a cold sweat some nights with Stephen's face in front of him and his his words sort of ringing in his ears, wondering if, did I do the right thing? Am I doing the right thing? And then just suppressing that and saying, no, I just got to keep with this task. The testimony of the followers of Jesus was something that was pricking Saul's conscience. And the last thing I would say that that God was doing was, was pricking Saul's conscience about sin. It was his own conscience about his sin. This is the prick that God is using, his own conscience about his sin. Saul's going to later write uh, about how he had been convicted by the law of his own covetousness, and that while he was a Pharisee and a strict keeper of the law, he was aware of his sin. He was aware of the ways that he fell short of the glory of God, that no matter how good he was or how great his lineage was or how zealous he might be, that he was still a sinner. And what was God going to do with his sin? Could he be good enough? Then all of these things and more, even just his whole upbringing as as a, a Jewish person, all of these things could have been prodding and pricking Saul right up to the moment when Jesus appeared to him in this blinding light. You know, maybe maybe as he's riding along, his mind is is thinking about some of these things, and right when he's about to try to shake them all off, Jesus just bursts through the crowd, the clouds, and appears to him. You know, these prods and pricks, these are are not unique to Saul. This is how God still draws people. He draws people through uncertainty about who Jesus really is. They try to deny 
him or his life and his death and his resurrection, but there's just this nagging wonder about whether or not he might really, what if he is? What if he is the Savior of the world? God still uses the testimony of of faithful followers of Christ to prick the consciences of others, the way that that we might live and the way that we, we might die with unshakable hope. And people wonder, maybe this is all true. God still convicts people of sin that no matter how much they might pretend to enjoy their sin, they are awakened to the, the fact that of the death that comes from all sin. And they wonder if maybe I can be forgiven. Maybe there's a way to walk in holiness. Maybe this path isn't where fulfillment is. You know, I think God probably used all those prods when he was calling each of us until some moment of deep clarity. And we started to wonder, maybe Jesus really is the Messiah. We started to see the love of fellow Christians and just wondered, maybe I can be a part of that community. We started to, to be convicted of our sin. And if God did that in us, then he's doing it in others. And we should all be good doctors of the souls of our friends and our neighbors and strangers that we meet and see when they wince with conviction at their sin. We should see when they sort of furrow their brow at the wonder, maybe Jesus really is who he said he was. And they... They wonder about the love that believers have for one another. And then, led by the Spirit, we might ask good questions and we might allow people to feel the pain of their sin and, and to know that they can have forgiveness through Christ. And as we talk with people, as God has been drawing them and prodding them, we might be the person that gets to see the scales fall from their eyes. After a long time of slow preparation, God might just step in in a moment of sudden intervention. And save them. The unlikelihood of, of Saul's conversion and the way that God used all these different pricks and goads that we're calling them to, to bring him to faith, it reminded me of this, this book called A Severe Mercy. I don't know if anyone's ever read this. Um, it's by a man named Sheldon Van Auken. And part of this is the story of how he and his wife, uh, who's nicknamed Davy, which could be confusing, that's his wife, Davy, um, how they became Christians. Uh, they were both really strong intellectuals, and they had arrived in, in Oxford for Sheldon to teach, if I remember rightly. And once they were there, they ended up coming in contact, uh, just by chance, uh, by the sovereignty of God, with this group of Christians. And they weren't sure what to do with this group of people. But I just want to read a little bit of this story in a conversation that they have early on when they meet this group of Christians. Here's a, a bit of an introduction. Sheldon writes, One afternoon, having strolled with a friend along the Isis, I was walking alone across Port Meadow into Oxford, hearing change ringing bells in the distance. It may be that the bells led me to picture a church spire surmounted by a cross. Anyhow, into my mind came, as it had done every now and then through the years, the memory of the shadow of a cross made by the destroyer's mast and yardarm, and my subsequent resolve someday to have another look at the case for Christianity. Perhaps now was the time to do it. The idea seemed less revolting than at other times it had recurred. Of course, Christianity couldn't possibly be true, the thought suggested. Still, another thought pointed out there was that resolve, and one ought to be fair. As I made my way through the streets to to collect my bicycle, I happened to look up. There against the darkening gray sky was the tremendous soaring uprush of the spire of St. Mary the Virgin. My resolve came to the point, this was the time to do it. I swung about, nearly colliding with another man, and went into Blackwell's, the booksellers. 
Some while later, I arrived at the Woodstock flat with an armload of books on Christianity. Over tea, I told Davy of my thoughts and the effect of that 13th century spire of St. Mary's, quite possibly the loveliest spire in Christendom. Davy was pleased. I've been thinking that we ought to know more, she said. Oh, good, I see you've got some C.S. Lewis. Thad and the others are always talking about him. Who is he, anyhow? A don, I said. He's a don at one of the colleges, Magdalen. It says on this book. Not theology, though. English lit. Very brilliant, I think. I read part of a debate he was having with some philosopher. I think I'll read this one first. Miracles. Okay, said Davy. I'll read screw tape letters. Then we can trade Marianne and Lou. Marianne and Lou, everyone, in fact, will be pleased, won't they? They certainly will, I said. But listen, Davy, we're just having a look, you know. Let's keep our heads. There are enormous arguments against Christianity. Oh, I know, she said. I don't see how it could be true. But, well, how would you feel if we decided it was true? Um, I said, I'm not sure. One would know the meaning of things. That would be all well and good. But we'd have to go to church and all that and, well, pray. Still, it would be great to know meanings and, you know, the purpose of everything. But it couldn't be true. How could Earth's religion, one of the Earth's religions, be true for the whole galaxy? Millions of planets, maybe. That's what rules it out right from the beginning. It's, it's too little. I know, said Davy. Look, these three are sort of a science fiction trilogy. Out of the Silent Planet, Perlandra, and That Hideous Strength. Did you know that? Good Lord, I said. No, I'll read those first, unless you want to. No, she said, I want to read Screwtape. Thad says it's funny. And that's how it all began. The encounter with light. Only, of course, it didn't begin then. It began when we came to Oxford, or it began with the shadows of masts and trees, or it began with our abandoning our childhood religion. To believe with certainty, somebody said, one has to begin by doubting. Wherever it began, what it was, was a coming together of disparate things. Our love for each other and for beauty, our longing for unpressured time and the night of the cold sea fire on Grey Goose, the quality of our Christian friends, and the Oxford built by hands, and the Oxford that I saw in the face of the Warden of All Souls, they came together into one, and they came together into one, into focus, and the light fell upon them. It's a long reading, but I love how just all these different things, walking down the street and seeing a, a cross, hearing Christian friends talk about this guy C.S. Lewis and the books he'd written, and these conversations, that it leads them into Christianity. And the preparation and the prodding, God was drawing Sheldon and Davy slowly until this moment of divine intervention when they really did see who Jesus was and they really clearly believed. I think that's probably the case for all of us who have trusted in Christ. A string of seen and unseen prods until a moment that through divine, a divine and supernatural light immediately imparted to our souls, as Edward call, Edwards called it, in that moment we believed and we were saved. Books were a part of this couple's story, as were actually some letters that were exchanged, exchanged between Sheldon and C.S. Lewis. They were, Lewis was alive, and they wrote back and forth, and he was instrumental in, in his life. But another key part was this faithful witness of a small group of Christians. They're like Ananias in this text. They were faithful to the promptings of the Lord to speak the truth, and so we're encouraged finally by this text, and just briefly, we're encouraged to courageously respond when Jesus invites us to be a part of his work. So never assume that someone can't be saved. Um, look for God, God's hand working through slow preparation and sudden intervention. And then finally, courageously respond 
when Jesus invites us to be a part of his work. We don't know much about Ananias other than that he was a disciple at Damascus. That's all we know. He could have been 18. He could have been 80. He could have been a physical therapist or a uh, computer technician or a student or a teacher or any number of things. None of that really matters, right? He was just a faithful man that God chose to take the gospel to Saul, which just shows us that we can all be a part of God's work when he calls us to do it. He was hesitant to obey God at first, understandably so, right? Given what he knew about Saul, but he eventually went, as he was told, to the street called Straight, which is still a major road in Damascus. And as he was walking up to the, walked into the house, another piece of God's plan came together and he laid his hands on Saul, prayed for him. Saul's blindness left him and the Spirit filled him and he was baptized and shared a meal with Ananias. I think it was probably over that meal that Ananias told him a little bit more about what Jesus had said. And as we think about that message, I think there's two things that Ananias tells Paul that I think we should also seek to tell others when we're sharing the good news of the gospel with them, when we're discipling others. They're things that Jesus clearly told those who wish to follow him, and they're things that Saul would highlight later in his letters. And they're these two things. The cost of following King Jesus and the reward of following King Jesus. He talks about the cost of following Jesus, but also the reward. You see it there, it says, Go, for this is verse 15, For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. From the beginning, Saul was told just how hard this was all going to be for him that there was much he was going to suffer for Jesus' sake. And it's something we often leave out when we're sharing the gospel. We talk about forgiveness and eternal life, which are true rewards that we have, but we fail to tell people just how much following Jesus is going to cost them. We heard part of our missionary Sean Martin's testimony of how a faithful co-worker shared the gospel with him. Sean told me as I was taking him back to the airport that Sunday about how at one point his friend actually... He was talking to his friend and he said that he thought he was ready to become a Christian. To which his friend said, no you're not. And then his friend proceeded to tell him how hard it was going to be. He helped Sean count the cost. He did what Jesus does. He says, don't put your hand to the plow unless you are going to stick with it. Let the dead bury their dead. You come follow me. He told him to count the cost. Saul was told how much following Jesus was going to cost him. And it cost Saul a great deal. But he was also invited into the great reward of serving Jesus. Saul was shown that in following Jesus, he's going to be part of God's plan for spreading the message of salvation to everyone. Saul is going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. He's going to take the gospel to the children of Israel. He's going to stand before kings and tell them about who Jesus is. He's going to take the gospel to everyone. The reality is that both of these things are true. When we become followers of Jesus, we lose our lives. But in losing them, we gain them. We, can, we are called to follow Jesus, and in doing that, we're going to suffer much for his kingdom, but we're also part of the reason for which God created the world, the gathering of all people to glorify him for all time. When you tell others about the gospel, don't make it less than it is. It's not some small decision. It's not an add-on to your already busy and full life. It's something that's going to cost you your life. It may cost you some of your dreams. But to be a Christian is to be a part of the eternal kingdom of God. 
It's to be an heir alongside Jesus. It's to be a son and a daughter of God. If you've never bowed your knee to King Jesus, I want to encourage you that you are not beyond God's reach. Because no one is. Jesus can bring you life and forgiveness just as he did for Saul. Of course, maybe you don't want it. Maybe you reject Christianity outright. But I would tell you to consider Jesus, who he claimed to be, and whether or not you're so sure that he's not just that. Consider the church, consider the followers of Jesus, and while not perfect, how they reflect the love and the mercy of God's kingdom in this world. Think about your own sin. Think about the fact that there's a judge of all the world that you will be held accountable to. The gospel holds out life to us, and I would hold out life to you today. Life in Jesus, if you would confess your sins and trust in him as the one who died in your place and rose to give you new life. I'd invite you to be a part of the reason for which God created the world. It's not a life that's free from suffering and sacrifice, but Jesus, is, Jesus promises, promises us that if we would lose our lives for his sake, then we will find them. And I'd say to those of you who have found your life in Christ, I would invite you to respond this morning as we sing this song of gratitude. Jesus, thank you. And also that we would resolve to courageously share the good news of the kingdom. Because as we look and we walk through this world, we can know that God is purposely pursuing particular people as he's spreading his gospel to the ends of the earth. He invites us to be a part of that. And Saul shows us that God is able to save anyone, even you and even me.